Jay Gooder, everyone. Jay Gooder. And welcome to the Yogananda podcast, where we talk everything Yogananda and SRF. Um, you've joined us on chapter eight, part three of the autobiography of a yogi line by line coverage, where we're going into um, everything that is covered in the autobiography of a yogi. Um, you can read along with us on this journey. We're going to be covering from in time, the leading scientific societies of the world accepted my theories and results. And we're going to certainly try to get through today um, all the way down to the last sentence of tears stood in my eyes at this scientist's concluding words is patience. And I'll not read, read on because it's such a <laughs> such a powerful last sentence, but that's, we're going to read, read down to there. Um, if you would like to pause and read along with us, please do feel free to do so. Um, so we do continue on from the last part that Lauren kindly, kindly took us through. Um, we're looking at the speech, really, and, and the conversation um, of Jagadish Chandra Bose, um, who is renowned as the father of modern science in India, in uh, the subcontinent of India. So very significant individual. And Yogananda has uh, had the uh, benefit of speaking to him and he's thought it so significant that he's bringing this whole chapter to us. So, you know, it's been great actually doing a bit more research into who this individual was and what the institute that he founded um, did and is doing today. So we're going to delve into that in a little bit more detail later uh, in, in the show. But for now, we're looking at this speech that Bose is giving. Um, uh, and really, he's coming out with so many significant statements. And Yogananda is compressed at a much longer speech that he gave. Um, and he, uh, Yogananda compressed it for us. So we're seeing a more condensed version of a longer speech. Um, so every line is just punchy. <laughs> and it's so significant, every, every single line that he says. Um, and really, uh, there's an extract um, in this article that Yogananda has decided to, to share with us by a professor um, of um, the Pennsylvania University called Professor W. Norman Brown, um, which appeared in the 1939 May edition of the uh, Bulletin of American Council of Learned learned societies in Washington, D.C. And essentially, really what the professor here is saying um, uh, that uh, India's contribution to science is so significant um, that he thinks that uh, there should be a individual, particularly in the hum humanities, in every major university that should be equipped with properly trained specialists knowledge in the uh, Indic phases of its discipline. Uh, and so this is what Bose is suggesting himself as well, that in time leading scientific societies around the world uh, accepted his theories and results, uh, which is fantastic to hear because he was having some problems with that initially when he first broke into the scene in the bioinformatics scene. Um, but uh, Larry, you know, he was recognized uh, and his work was recognized um, uh, by the importance of the Indian contribution to science. So, so here we have um, in this Council of Learned Societies um, 
American Council of Learned Societies article that uh, Professor Norma Braun is indeed concurring with. Um, Brian, come to you. Yeah, he mentions in the first sentence um, that the India, the Indic phase of discipline is something that's, you know, really needed, um, doesn't really elaborate. Now, Professor Norman Brown, he's a, he's like an expert in Sanskrit and, uh, and uh, India and history of India. So I was wondering what he could be referring to as to uh, Indic phases of discipline. I don't, don't know. Um, Dabas is potentially one of them. It's like, um, uh, like, what's the word? It's like um, striving, bit of that, um, sacrifice, austerities. Um, just wondering what other disciplines in the Indic phase or that Guruji perhaps talks about that could be relevant here. Looking at everybody else for an answer, I'm not going to think. <laughs> I did, when I first read it, it's one of those things that um, I nodded, nodded along when I read it, thinking, yeah, 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 I agree, I agree. But actually, when you do stop to think about the Indic phases of its discipline, it's it's uh, a lot more harder to grasp, I think. Um, yeah. Well, Matt, the next line is equally uh, provocative, I think, a little bit. Uh, we believe, too, that every college which aims to prepare its graduates for intelligent work in the world, which is to be theirs to live in, um, must have basically be confident in the civilization of India. But the first bit of that, um, prepare its graduates for intelligence, intelligent work, is um, is uh, something that's a bit of a bugbear of mine because most of certainly the UK's education system is about preparing the person to pass the exam versus preparing the person to be intelligent in any phase or walk of their life um i mean they try and make a big song and a dance about extracurricular activity and all that kind of stuff but really that gets you in terms of like getting to university they literally only care about your <laughs> grade that you achieved um and i love that he's suggesting here that that should not be the way that we do our education we're going to talk about a couple of universities that are mentioned in this part of the chapter uh, later on, and maybe that will actually give us some uh, more insight as to how India had approached uh, study, higher levels of study. Um, certainly in the West, I, th I think it is criticized of trying to produce good workers, isn't it? Um, and that was sort of part and parcel of what it was trying to do um, for, for a long time. But Yogananda himself, very passionate about this subject, isn't he? Um, creating the how to live schools. And so, you know, it's something that's close to, to Guruji's heart, this subject. Well mentioned how to live schools. A lot of self-relationship fellowship classes um, that are published on YouTube. They've always got like the how to live, um, like a uh, quote in the, in the title class on how to live, or whether it's... Uh, the guru disciple relationship or meditation or love or all those things that they have got videos on but to the other thing that um, i mentioned here was that um, the staff must the universities must have on its staff a scholar competent in the civilization of india so we, we mentioned that um, 
this uh, professor brown was a bit of a expert in in india so no no wonder he would uh, be fascinated and inspired by um the universities that you talk about that we're going to talk about later chris but mm -hmm. um also that so it could be that he's talking about that in terms of its pure history of india but he could also be referring here to the the method of the civilization in terms of how they imparted education and knowledge um for example uh, there was a, a strong oral oral tradition of um of passing down knowledge through uh, repetition of a specific mantra so then it wouldn't um, it would be remembered as opposed to uh, written down or you know on a stone tablet somewhere um, and it would be remembered very precisely and uh, this um, part of that is because Sanskrit lends itself well to memorizing things because it's poet is very poetic and depending on who the author of the the verses can make it very rhythmic and lots of like rhyming things in there um and really romantic kind of language um you can only compare it to, to like poetry that in, in in the west western poetry that's really like um punchy in terms of being very easy to memorize yeah, and that uh, sentiment, I think, is reflected in what is said in this paragraph. Uh, now, again, as I said, there's so much uh, power in his words. Uh, he, he mentions Bose. Uh, he goes on to say, can anything small or circumscribed, circumscribed ever satisfy the mind of India? And I think this is where we'll ultimately finish in this podcast it's linked to that isn't it where he's indicating you know his true passion and love for the people of india uh, and you know their inquisitiveness uh, of mind uh, that he, he does talk about uh, uh, time and time again i think that's probably the theme for me this this idea of satisfying the mind using the mind in the pursuit of truth and, and discovery and so he says by continuous living tradition um, and a vital power of rejuvenance. Um, this land has readjusted itself through a number of transformations. So he's saying essentially that the struggle, he goes on to talk about the struggles and the realizations in life actually comes comes through this active struggle um, and that you know one should not be weak and refuse the, the conflict, uh, but rise to the challenge, use the mind, uh, as a tool to be able to forge a way through uh, life uh, and discover what the truth is uh, of the reality around us. And he talks here, I just, I love this word. He, he uses the victorious experience. So he says, um, you know, one uh, who can enrich the world by bestowing the fruits of his victorious experience. And he's almost talking about himself in, in many ways here because he's he's done so much to really kind of carve the way you know uh, clear the path for for others to follow in his intellectual pursuit uh and the wielding of his mind so um i did think to myself well you know if anyone's going to say that it's certainly going to be him because <laughs> he's he's done so much for india yeah he's a like being a pioneer is not easy right you have to 
go against the grain a little bit. And I'm sure when he started this, there, there wasn't really this tradition of, of big um, scientific work. And he often mentions that he, um, he admires the way the West at the time was doing science. So he kind of took the best of both worlds, merged it together. And if you want, you could draw a connection between him and landing a lunar lander on the far side of the moon, right? Because this is where it all started. And uh, one funny story is that one of his students was uh, Sisir Kumarmitra, right? Who is also a very famous scientist. And both of them, Jagadish Chandra, both and Mitra have craters named after them on the moon. And the lunar lander landed near the Mitra crater and took pictures of it when they landed. So boom, there's some connection. Nice knowledge bomb there. Um, <laughs> uh, the I, I really loved the um, the line by continuous living tradition, and then and then and then later on the land has readjusted itself through unnumbered transformations. Um, one because um, it is one of the few civilizations that continued um, pretty much as it as it was, even though. Has had so many transformations, and as we, as we um, record this, India is going through its own transformation of whether or not to change its name to its ancient name, uh, which is Bharat, um, and which is more commonly used in uh, you know day to day uh, people in, in into the hearts of India. That's that's a name. So even now, it's going through its uh, quietly going through its um, transformations. But um, the other thing I liked here was. Um, that uh, he says that the realization of the highest ideals of life, as Chris read, um, not through passive renunciation, but through active struggle. And I found a good little clip here that we're going to play. So just listen to this. It was so when we were watching the DVD in his presence with Srimanlini Mataji. In one passage, she was just describing an experience she had. She said to Guruji, I am willing to die for your work. And the response she felt was, to die for my work is easy. Are you willing to live for my work? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't top master, you see. <laughs> um, which uh, rings true here because uh, passive renunciation would just be like, oh, you know, I give it all up to God and let God do the work that needs to be done in the, in the world. And that's obviously, in many ways, it's admirable, but it's many ways, it's the cop-out approach when there's so much work, <laughs> work to be done. And here, as he says, that um, it's not through passive renunciation, but through active struggle. And uh, all of us know something of the active struggle, I'm sure every day in each one of our meditations. Yeah, it's it's such a profound subject that, you know, I would hope that, uh, you know, just thinking back to the convocation, it's a big subject that could be talked about really there by, you know, Monk and really delved into in powers the part, or maybe we could do a special on it someday as well, uh, on, on Guruji's talks and teaching and things like that. Um, so, 
is is uh, is hitting a very important um, hinting on a very important subject, and it, it does go on to talk about the lab's success, uh, and really there is a lot of success still ongoing to this day um, that we'll we'll touch on shortly, um, and Mike sort of hinted toward uh, how the Bose lab does uh, still impact. Uh, society in even a bigger way today than what it was in Guruji's day. Um, and really here we can see that the Bose uh, laboratory has, you know, opened up uh, all sorts of inquiries in, you know, physics, uh, physiology, medicine, agriculture, and even psychology, um, not just in the revelations in plant life in the bioinformatics space. Uh, and it's quite a Quite a beautiful ripple effect then that they're having and there is um, a lot of information on this we can link to the those institute site where they actually have you know announcements they have um, academic research published um, published there and um, yeah all the publications are on the site so if you are partial to hearing more about it do feel free to jump on on their site um, and check it out so Really, the success, there's a great line here that Bose uses. He says, but high success is not to be obtained without rigid exactitude. And that's such a great line because I feel that's what Guruji talks about a lot with uh, Kriya yoga, uh, yoga and the practice of, of yoga in general has to be done with exactitude. Um, and here we have Bose saying the exact same thing for the scientific study. Um, do you feel like that he mentions Jagadish Chandra Bose in his book because he often says that yoga is a science, meditation is a science, and that that there's everything is very exact in God's universe, in God's creation. So you, if you put the right formulas together, you will get the exact right response or result. And so maybe that's also part of being a yogi that you have to be exact with everything with your practice and with your the things you do the things you feel like um uh how you do your meditation practice like every little detail counts and then you you experiment with it and then you improve your results like that so uh, in a way a yogi is like a kind of divine scientist of his own realization always wanted to be a scientist there you go thank you yeah the science of yoga is, as yogananda says i think it is quite quite true correct yeah that high success that we're talking about and the rigid exactitude that's required as as is, as is the line is um is really kind of a mantra for srf isn't it is keep the teachings pure is is one thing but how closely can you follow the practices as they're described because i personally find every single um, um meditation like every every single class that we have on roof technique review there's always something that i've strayed into a habit of not doing correctly or um, was never doing correctly because my interpretation was wrong all the time or um yeah or you know doing it even doing it slightly slightly better 
or you know not doing it because you think you've already got that um so there's always that um but if, if we do it as as that's described here with the rigid exactitude then uh, our success you'd describe is assured and in the previous paragraph it says like he who he alone who has striven and won can enrich the world by bestowing the fruits of his victorious experience so we can only uh you know rich enrich the world essentially after we've become you know we've won uh you know through our rigid extract exactitude um and then we we're able to share the best of ourselves one of my favorite Guruji quotes is if you practice one percent of what i teach you you will find god it's always very comforting mm. even one percent is a lot i would say yeah <laughs> Not, not an insignificant percent um yeah i do find frank just to go back to what you were saying there you almost read what you want to read in some sense you read it and you go hold on a second was that i could have sworn oh, no, it doesn't say that it says something very specific and that's you have to go back time and time again and guruji's obviously foreseeing that because he does tell us to <laughs> take our time to read it digest it to really you know live the words and we take it take it uh with exactitude as well um frank did you want to jump in there? um well the next i was going to go to the next line um but you can you can go to that after b the uh the long battery of mm. sensitive instruments yeah it's it, it's so it is so good looking at the um the images that they have on the site that you know i, I think i'll link to the uh, listeners to say to go check it out because there's so much to see um from back in Moses' day you know the instruments that he had the, the size of them the scale of them the number of them um so they're, they're all there the, on the website to check out so we can link to anyone who wants to go and check them out for themselves um to the website and as with any museum you get an insight into what really what really happens there even if you can't you know be the one that's pioneered it or come up with it or even do the analysis you can you know get into get into that frame where you can experience what he was experiencing in his discoveries because like in the previous paragraph here he says that um you know they 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 managed to discover unexpected revelations in plant life that extended into every regions of like physics physiology medicine and agriculture so it's like really broad and um like it's the impact of those works um is uh you can't underestimate them because like um even terms in science such as like plant and neurobiology is like is a distinct um discipline now because of uh you know the work and the discoveries that both both did so he created disciplines after his his um, discoveries and um similarly like uh, the all you know disc current discoveries or the technology that we use for radio waves and coherers and solid even solid state physics comes back to those discoveries that Bose did so like you you wouldn't say oh Bose is the uh, person that is behind the computer uh, or you know all these advanced silicon chips but if he hadn't done all those things then it wouldn't have led to all the follow-up follow-on discoveries but the biggest thing i think is the 
multidisciplinary multidisciplinary approach that you now take when you do subjects before it was probably very narrow when you're when you're doing your studies it was probably like this is what you study this is what you specialize in whereas now like everything is like blended like um and you can study if you study natural sciences you can talk about the blending of like physics and biology and other fields and things like that and he does say just that essentially what, what you're talking about he says look this is really quite significant what is in front of you and i think it's um quite a nice perspective really that he's trying to give to us here and why Guruji's relaying it to to us which is um the strife the human toil the persistence the resourcefulness uh, called forth to overcome human limitations as he says here in this paragraph um and he says you know you can take that from just looking at what we've produced here all these mechanics and instruments like they are it is very significant in its analogy or you know as a almost like a metaphor um of of human human strife so so he um he recognizes it almost on on that philosophical level as well so um yeah the scientific implications are huge but certainly from a philosophical element um it's it's really significant as well and i just looking at the times of when he um you know he was born 1858 um and passed in 1937 you know the there's so much uh innovation so much you know revelation coming through in the scientific community around the world you know at that time and my favorite time because it's the you you know relative to the yugas always have to try to drop the yugas in there the Dwarpara yuga kicked off you know so so that's um it's all very significant it's all god's god's work essentially being manifested through people like those and others um so really really nice stuff and he says um again you know this this theme um he states here all creative scientists know that the true laboratory is the mind where behind illusions they uncover the laws of truth wow that is a that's a beautiful statement there from Bose. I don't have anything to add to it. <laughs> I think I think if if we study that that um that sentence, if it didn't have the word creative, I think it would be a completely different flavor. So um the creativity element of scientists, I think, is really important as opposed to just studying science just to, you know commercial success or because this is your scope of your research etc being creative is i think a really operative word there um and that is the goal i think for all of our educational establishments um that we have and even the majority of the roles that uh, important roles in technology in industry as well um it's the ideal isn't it um, but that's not necessarily um, <laughs> what we uh, what we have today. Um, what we usually have today is this is what I'm employed for. This is what I'll do, and then I'll go home. <laughs> uh, people rarely push the um, envelope, um, and then when they do, their management usually says, "No, this is this is your scope. <laughs> nothing, nothing more." But uh, yeah, it's really important. Are you defining career scientists versus <laughs> <laughs> nice versus creative scientists? Yeah. Creative.
I wouldn't be so negative about our current science. I think we're actually making amazing new discoveries all the time by people who are very creative. And I think creativity is something that you would not expect as an important skill as a scientist, because when you when you learn theory, a lot of it is theory in science, right? You, you think it's so dry and it's kind of the opposite of something that a creative person would have done. But uh, I think the creativity is involved in how to set up an experiment, how like um, taking all the knowledge you have, go through it in your mind and just try to make sense of it, try to create a theory that kind of makes all the, the kind of results of experiments that you have made, like incorporate all of them. And it's very difficult. And of course it's never right. It's never quite right. You're always a, a bit closer to the truth, but you're not, you never actually reach it. And so it's very entertaining if you are, I feel like the, those really high, highly skilled scientists are very special people because they have an, an incredible imagination and they, they don't need to write this all down. They constantly, they, they wake up in the morning in the shower, all they think of is all their, their kind of theories, like colliding against each other. And, and then when they come up with an idea, then it's that on such a high level that it is very hard to explain to someone who doesn't have all the background knowledge. And I guess there is, it's easy to have a disconnect between someone who just made a breakthrough discovery and someone who doesn't know anything about the field and then explaining it to them, it's, it's tough. And then it sounds dry. Mm. My wife, um, sorry, no, Mike, you're such a cup half glass half full of person, aren't you? There you go. Yeah, I was I was referring um, to the potential of uh, of humanity versus versus uh, you know the areas where we've had so much success, which obviously there is lots of areas. My wife and I were discussing exams the other day, university exams, and um, and she was saying, oh, she didn't ever look at um, past papers because um, they usually they give a very good indication as to what's coming up in the next next paper and it's a legitimate uh, method of studying and i said oh i never copied anyone's um you know coursework or looked at anyone else's coursework when i did my own and then we were comparing notes there but um i i found it funny because she, she said something like um you know the the process of learning um when you're just doing it fresh without being constricted by what's in the exam is so different to just freely learning the subject because it then takes you to all new vistas and um and that was an interesting conversation we we're having about this very topic yeah and it's kind of why i insist on saying to the listeners like pause and read along with us because you know the insights that we have just by reading ourselves you know this um you know beautiful uh, book that uh, Yogananda has put together for us is, you know, going to be different. You know, I'll, I'll look at it and think one thing, you know, Frank will think another thing. And, you know, that's that's a great thing, isn't it? And then we come together and we share everything. So um, if any listeners, you know, they'll, they'll have their own unique, you know, insight as well. So um, that, that's great to share. Um, Mike, whenever you were talking there, I got the image of, you know, the Higgs boson collider. And it was really quite cool, like when you said you were talking about scientists being creative and having thoughts you know going around and you know they, essentially they collide and something 
something that is created from that collision of thoughts and ideas. And it, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful little imagery um, that popped into my head for that. So thanks. Um, and the most creative person I know, I should say for the record, is my wife. And my wife is a scientist. So she's a PhD, you know, she's a doctorate. So um, I, I should agree with you, Mike, uh, not <laughs> so negative points because I'm married to one. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah. it sounds like she's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying just in case. <laughs> you should have said it louder, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what what I did notice, um, Frank, just whenever you pulled out um, a word then from, uh, from that statement, all creative scientists, is another one at the end where it says, where behind illusions, they uncovered the laws of truth. Now that word illusions is, is something that I think is probably quite fitting to somebody of India or are we saying Bharat, Bharat now, um, uh, where you know we talk about Maya and the illusions of Maya quite often, don't we? That word is linked. Whenever I think of illusions, I think of Maya, the, the illusions of Maya. So there's that word thrown in, you know, thrown in there. And I think the significance of that word to me uh, is, is very relevant. Uh, relevant for who it came from uh, as opposed to if you heard a maybe westerner talk it might be the phenomena you know the phenomena of life or something slightly different but um certainly it has a different connotation behind it when i reread it illusions is quite um an emotive word for scripture as well uh, in terms of its re relation to maya um mm. and that that fits as well here like where behind maya they uncover the laws of truth so it's like grasping grasping um truth is in essence there but the the previous paragraph is previous sentence feel you feel like it could go next but they put it previously so the previous sentence talked about what the apparatus what all the experiments what they achieved and it said they tell you of the protracted effort to get behind the deceptive seeming into the reality that remains unseen and the continuous toil and persistence and resourcefulness called for to overcome human limitations. So it's essentially saying you do these, this is, this is the one plus two plus three approach to get six for to, to, to get to uncover the most profound mysteries of God's creation, isn't it? Yeah. Um... And he's definitely punching a big hole in in this Maya, this field of Maya for everybody's sort of peer through, isn't he? Mm -hmm. um, and he does continue with more innovation, states of you know, states of innovation, altruism, uh, and acceptance, you know, of the academic world. And so we'll look at uh, this this next um, uh, statement, which Prank you you touched on uh, before. Where, uh, Bose himself says that the lectures given here will not be mere repetitions of second-hand knowledge and that's a powerful statement so he's not you're not going to just maybe attend you know the institution go there and um, regurgitate something that someone you know uh, a time ago has, has learned you're going to embark on new fields of research and it's going to be pioneering uh, and it's it's quite you know visionary it, it uh would be very inspiring to 
if you were a scientist, you would want to go there and work uh, work alongside somebody like this uh, because they're, they're the real trailblazers of, of history. Um, so the uh, the announcements, these new discoveries that he mentions, um, that will reach the whole world now. Uh, what are they? It does. It does say so, uh, through regular publication. I did mention at the beginning of the podcast. We can link to the to the website. We do uh, encourage people to check it out for themselves. There's so much there. Uh, we simply just wouldn't have time to go through it all. Um, but there is um, uh, there are uh, a lot of significant moments in more recent history that we can read out. So maybe Priyank, you would be kind enough to kick us off on some of the achievements and uh, yes. Sure. The Institute also has a Centre of Excellence in Bioinformatics, which was established in 1988 with funding from the Department of Biotechnology from the government. Lauren, would you continue on? Mm -hmm. The division's research interests include evolutionary bioinformatics, stem cell bioinformatics and regulatory RNAs, on, on this is one I always get a trip up a little bit on this one. Oncogenomics, oncogenomics. Someone's gonna be able to <laughs> pronounce that one correctly. Proteomics, drug design, structural bioinformatics, and macromolecular dynamics. Well done. That was fair. I, I Thank did. you. <laughs> you feel the pain. Myself. I didn't that myself. <laughs> Thank you, Lon. Mike, what's going on recently? at the Bose Institute. All right, so in March, 2023, the Institute announced that it had received a grant of 1 million from the, um, 1 million euros from the European Union to support its research on quant quantum technologies. This funding will be used to develop new quantum sensors and devices that could give, that could have uh, applications in areas such as secure communication and drug discovery. I always have to think of, how like a lot of people that talked about the the moon land the moon ladder the indian one they emphasized how cheaply they have done this how <laughs> little money somebody <laughs> and um i would say a million euros in india goes a long way so well done um then in april 2023 the institute announced that it had signed a memorandum of understanding with the Indian Space Research Organization, ISRO, to collaborate on research in space science. This collaboration will focus on developing new technologies for space exploration and monitoring. And then in May 2023, the Institute announced that it had launched a new research center on artificial intelligence. This center will bring together experts from different disciplines to work on developing new AI-based applications for healthcare, education, and other sectors. Wow, so, it's just three months, yeah. Mind-blowing, uh, mm. like going on there. And that was, that's just this year. So that, mm -hmm. That's just, you know, I took sort of the creme, creme to the creme of the, of the news, you know, in, in this year alone. So it's uh, still very much, um, very significant. And on their uh, site, you can see, uh, you know, the prime ministers uh, in India you know, going and um, acknowledging maybe you know, opened uh, an institute um, uh, for them. So it's it's quite embedded uh, in India to this day. So that's 
really great to see. Um, so the the words here that Bose is saying, some you know what nearly nearly hundred years ago, for for argument's sake, maybe eighty years ago, um, really have aged well, uh, which is is good to see. Um, so through regular publication, the work of the institute and these Indian contributions will reach the whole world, and they have done indeed. Brent. Yeah, it's, it's, it'd be such a great place to um, to work in, isn't it? Considering its history and its importance to um, to India and and the world. Yeah, yeah, and really, the next sentence here really blew me away. The next paragraph actually blew me away when I when I read this again. Um, because it wasn't in the back of my mind, you know, having remembered. Um, so rereading re this is fantastic. So he says that they will become, talking about the publications, uh, they will become public property. No patents will ever be taken. The spirit of our national culture demands that we should forever be free from the desecration of utilizing knowledge only for personal gain. That is just such a wonderful statement. And when you think about science and you know the benefits to humanity that it can bring, it's just a very awe-inspiring statement. And it doesn't hold back his, his, uh, his words here. He uses desecration, the word desecration of utilizing knowledge for only for personal gain. Brian, what's your take? Yeah, this is part of the reason why um, I said what I said earlier about the stifling of uh, creativity in the world because of this... Um, approach um even like forget um science even even in news like the broadsheets in, in the united kingdom um the, the the basically the the most accomplished writers usually work for the broadsheets and to to read their work you have to buy <laughs> you have to pay to read their work so it's just it's just so crazy and, and science is obviously um not exempt from that but this this method of um or this philosophy further emphasizes why this would be the best place in the world to work, isn't it? Um, like, for example, um, uh, Mike earlier mentioned um, Indian Space Research Organization, and and by the way, Mike, it's ISRO. That's what we say. We don't you don't say ISRO. Um, we just say ISRO. Is the um, I actually when I was in university, I wanted to because um, I did. Um, I did some space space stuff, uh, some space modules. Um, that was my minor, and I already wanted to go work in Israel. So I just emailed, googled, and emailed random people in the company, um, and said I'll just come and work for free. But no one ever responded. <laughs> yeah. As a recruiter, Frank, I like that initiative. I wish more people had it. But yeah, this um, this uh anti-capitalism approach is is something that literally is a topic we could spend so long on isn't it um it's like the, the highest form of altruism in terms of sharing of knowledge and you just can't believe that it's it's in the autobiography of a yogi isn't it that just shows you how much it must be linked to um spirituality really yeah i, I wonder what they thought of you when they when they read your email and then Says, oh, he's gonna work for free. It's like he can't be Indian. <laughs> I want to lose it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a joke. It must be a joke. He's been, he's been 
too much time in England. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the whole system that we have right now, oftentimes in the, the capitalist system often says that all the good things have to come from private initiatives. They can never come from the government. But if you think about research that creates public knowledge, it would have to come from a government or from some kind of public institution, right? So this is our, our conundrum that we can, some countries in the West do it better than others, but none of them do it really well. Um, so we have this, this idea that when the government does something, it has to be bad, it has to be slow, it has to be, uh, and then we don't put any money in it. And then it's always already failed before it even starts. So it's, I, I think a country like India, if they would show us how to do this correctly, then maybe we can mimic that approach. But right now we can only, that also drives our research a lot, right? Uh, because we make discoveries where we put our money, right? And then if we have private companies that, that see this is a, a field that is promising, then they throw their billions at it and then suddenly discoveries pop up. Mm -hmm. um, but it's hardly something that is driven with like public good in mind, I would say. Mm. And we mentioned this role like quite often in the past few episodes, but like the, mm. the recent, um, you know, uh, missions, they're, they're not commercializing them in the sense that they're freely giving away the, the findings and the data for, for people to analyze. So it seems like this philosophy, this ancient philosophy of the, the dissemination of knowledge is still filtering in to even the highest achievement, scientific um, and engineering achievements that India is uh, going through right now. Mm. Yeah. And who knows, maybe people in the scientific community have read these words and maybe were inspired by it. And you know, we talk about the ripple effects that the publications are having, but maybe the philo philosophy behind them is actually having ripple effects um, and might have more positive effects in the years to come. Who knows? Uh, but it's it's great to great to read. It was really really all inspiring for me to read that. Um, somebody of his significance, you know, coming out to make such a definitive statement. Um, and he the it goes on to really say about the um, uh, wish his wish pose his wish that the faculties of the institute be available so far as possible to workers from all countries. Um, and a lovely statement there. And it's tied in to uh, a, uh, he was paying homage to a, a couple ancient universities. Um, uh, and he says he wanted to carry on the tradition uh, in this country. So maybe he's setting a, uh, a tradition in the modern time, but you know, it does certainly good uh, about the patents, the issues of patents, but certainly the tradition of um, having workers from all countries attend universities goes far back um, as 25 centuries in India. Uh, as they had um, two universities there, the uh, Nalanda and the Taxila universities. And we do have a little bit on this. Um, and Prank just mentioned before we started recording that it, Taxila is mentioned a few times. Gur Guruji mentions it a few times, Prank. In, yeah, in the autobiography later on, we'll go through it. More okay. about like um, how some travelers experienced, um, some Greek philosophers experienced experience the university and their um and their lecturers and 
sannyasis. Mm-hmm. That's coming mm-hmm. later. Nice. We'll look forward to that. Um, the Nalanda University was said to have 10,000 students, 2,000 teachers. Um, and uh, it lasted for continually for almost um, 800 years. Now, that is amazing, you know, back from the 5th to the 12th century. So whenever I was reading that, it was, uh, it really just blew my mind because I had no idea that that existed. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it just goes to show maybe um, to, uh, what was it, Professor Brown's message, Norman Norman Brown's message that, you know, there should be more Indian scholars, you know, in universities that really, really have the wider uh, impact that India's had. Greg? Uh, the um the two thousand students to sorry two thousand teachers to ten thousand students that's like a one to five ratio and like the, the best universities in the world they're judged by um that ratio so like the oxfords and, and the cambridges in, in the uk have like one to ten ratio of, of lecturers to to students and the idea is you get more um you know personal one-on-one time if, if you have a lower number of students um, and that's probably one of the reasons why private schools in, in in the UK do do so well because they've got less students and teachers such as Lauren can spend give more of their energy um, and hopefully I, I should be going to Nalanda University um, as in the archaeological site later this year so I could report yeah. back. Send pics. It, it's uh, not far from Ranchi, right, Nalanda. It's like in the in the vicinity. I'm sure it's hundreds of miles away. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere same area. I I find that interesting. I mean, the population numbers at this time were probably different than today. By today's standard, ten thousand students isn't a lot, but the 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 ratio is great, right? One to five is really great i feel like a lot of universities that are like public universities in europe they probably have way worse ratios than that like i know university of vienna has around a hundred thousand students and i don't think they have how much would they have to have um 20,000 staff in this ratio would be what 20,000 that need 20,000 <laughs> professors right <laughs> <laughs> I, I very much doubt that <laughs> they probably have a thousand professors and what's the what's the a... what what country is Vienna in sorry Mike oh yeah there you yeah, go yes. we before yeah. this podcast listeners we learn a new word yeah how to pronounce Austria in its native language in German. Um, since we are, since countries start to renaming themselves to their, <laughs> to the, the, their names in their native languages, I think that's a good thing. Um, anyways, it would be interesting to also visit the modern University of Nalanda because <clears throat> I, I, I would want to know how much of those ancient traditions they incorporated and if maybe one day this will be a a place for scholars and researchers of all all over the world to come again, that'd be interesting to know. Yeah, it says on the Wikipedia page um, that the ruins revealed uh, that the university had a seamless coexistence between nature and man uh, and, be- and between mm. learning. That's so cool. 
I don't think you could quite do that as readily in Ireland, given the nature. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd have to travel all the way to India for that. And Guruji writes quite a lot about schools and schooling, and he often mentions that classes should be outside, right, under a tree, and that that would um, make the, the students calmer and create an environment for mm. for rapid learning. Yeah, I should say, <clears throat> Mike. Um, although ten thousand students <clears throat> is low, but that, if that was fifth century, you know, that could be mm. like yeah. fifty million people or something. You know, I think it's really. 50, maybe 100 million in the later centuries um, of the mm -hmm. population, you know, of, of India. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pretty, pretty impressive stuff. Um, and mm -hmm. Taxila, then, um, just to mention a little bit about this, according to, you know, John Marshall, who's an in, uh, English archaeologist, he's the director general of the Archaeological Survey of India, um, uh, he said that in early Buddhist literature, Texel is frequently mentioned as a university center where students could get instruction in almost any subject, religious or secular, from the Veda to mathematics and medicine, even to astrology and archery. The role of Texel as a center of knowledge grew stronger under the Mayura Empire and Greek rule, Indo-Greeks, in the third and second centuries BC. In the early centuries AD, it was a prominent center of Buddhist scholarship as well. So it's really, really quite nice to hear a little bit about that and what Guruji is um, so affectionately um, referring to throughout the autobiography of a yogi. Um, and that is really just a beautiful ideal, isn't it? You know, that the, uh, the uh, peoples, you know, from all over the world can, uh, should be able to come, should be no patents, no public property. It's just a really beautiful, um, sort of higher uh, yoga sort of thinking um, there displayed by Mr. Bose. Um, so finally, then we can come on to uh, the pursuit of truth is what I'm, what I'm calling this. And uh, really it's the last paragraph that we're going to look at. And um, uh, there's a large uh, footnote uh, in here that we'll, we'll cover uh, because it's super, super interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll uh, touch on, I think, would be the, the way to say this. Um, so what's, what's happening here? Well, uh, it said here, um, although science is neither of the East nor of the West, and I'm sure Guruji loved uh, every word of that. Um, this is Bose talking. Uh, he says, but rather international in its universality. Yet India is specifically fitted to make great contributions. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure Gurji Gurji loved uh, loved hearing that and concurred with every word. Um, and why would why would India be fitted, uh, especially fitted to make such contributions? And this is where the the footnote comes in. And so we can delve into that now. So the footnote really says. Um, but before I jump into Prank, do you want to? Yes. Earlier earlier we mentioned um, that it was a continuous living tradition and that um, the the disciplines that uh, the Indic disciplines that uh, Professor Norman talked about uh, the Indic phases of discipline and we didn't know what they were and Guruji doesn't really elaborate in this in the autobiography here but Dharamata I think has read our minds she knew we were going to do this podcast and hence 
1934 uh, produced this article that we're going to talk about right now, which I think is related to those questions we had before. Nice. Um, so the atomic structure, and this is in the footnote, um, was atomic structure of matter was well known to the ancient Hindus. And that is just, whenever I first read this, I love topics of, you know, ancient civilizations and, you know, yogas and all this stuff. So I thought, wow, <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so yeah, it, got, it really stirred a sort of childish uh, curiosity in me. Um, uh, so uh, one of the six systems of Indian philosophy is, I think the way to say it, correct me if I'm wrong here, is Vaisheshka. Vaisheshka. Yep. Sound good. Like more uh, of an inch. Um, from the Sanskrit uh, root uh, vis, uh, visas, atomic individuality, of the foremost uh, Vaisheshka expanders was uh, Aulukya, also called Kananda, uh, the atometer. What a name called <laughs> around uh, you know, 2,800 years ago. So this individual called Kananda, uh, the atom eater uh, th some 3000 years ago um, went into his own experience and really was able to delve uh, through the, the veil of uh, Maya through illusion, not by scientific exploration, um, but by going inward, it seems. So um, this is a real significant um, uh, part that we've talked about before in some ways said that the world of science and, you know, the world of yoga, you know, comes sort of full circle um, and inevitably they're, they're intrinsically linked. Here we have the atom eater some 3000 years ago, uh, and we'll talk about him a little bit now. So in an article by Tara Mata, um, uh, is that, um, be, oh, Tara Mata, sorry, in East West, April, 1934, a summary of the uh, uh, scientific knowledge was given as follows. So through the modern atomic theory, though the modern, modern atomic theory is generally considered a new advance of science, it was brilliantly expounded long ago by Kananda, the atom eater, the Sanskrit anus, and the properly translated as atom in the lat latter's literal Greek sense of uncut or indivisible. Other scientific expositions of Vashishka treatises uh, of the BC era include, and there's 10 aspects here that uh, the atomator was able to parse um, through his own experience. So we'll go through them uh, one by one. So firstly, uh, he talked about the movement of the needles towards magnets. Secondly, the circulation of water in plants. Thirdly, the akash or ether inert and structureless as a basis for transmitting subtle forces. Fourth, the solar fire as the cause of all other forms of heat. And fifth, the heat as, a, as the cause of molecular change. Sixth, the law of gravitation as caused by the quality that in, inher, uh, uh, inheres the uh, it, sorry, what's that word? Inheres. 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 Yeah. Thank you. And here's in earth atoms to give them their attractive power or downward pull. Well, we, we sort of know what that might be. Uh, mm. the, kinetic, the kinetic nature 
of all energy. Causation is always rooted in an expen expenditure of energy or a redistribution of motion. And hint, hint, we should know what that one is. Um, universal dissolution through the disintegration of atoms, another really important one, and the radiation of heat and light rays, infinitely small particles darting forth in all directions with inconceivable speed. And this is uh, interjected here to say that it's the modern cosmic rays theory. And finally, 10th, the relativity of time and space. So these are all really, really significant findings. Um, and I just played around with it a little bit and tried to search each and every one of them to see when you know the Western science field would claim as to when they came up. Um, now, uh, sorry, as, as, as to when they were officially discovered. Um, and I got hits of 17th century, 18th, um, 19th, 20th century, um, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity is in there, um, the Newton's uh, uh, gravity, theory of gravity um, is in there. Uh, and they're all essentially 18th, 19th, 17th century. So oddly, though, I was talking to AI, and I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, what, what I did here. I was talking to AI and the Bard and ChatGPT, and I said, okay, well, you know, when were these theories discovered? You know, when, when, was, when was this um, recognized? And it told me all the modern, modern findings. But whenever I pushed it to say, hey, do you know about uh, the uh, Vashishka? Do you know about this individual, Kananda? And I said, yes, you know, it is aware of it. And I said, well, did they, did this individual discover this in some way? And I almost broke the, <laughs> the AI because it had to really think and it paused that and I kind of looked at it and I didn't think it was going to come up with it, but it actually said yes. You know, when I really pushed it, I said yes, actually, but it simply said it was a philosophy. So the, the differential here, as is correct, is to say that it is not a scientific um, finding as we would say it's a modern scientific finding, but it's more of a philosophical finding is how to, to find it. But every single one it agreed, apart from with the ninth and 10th, the uh, cosmic rays theory and the relative, relativity of time and space, it couldn't understand that this individual came up with it. But I just thought it was interesting that even it, when pushed, recognized that, yeah, Kananda was one of the first um, in recorded history to, to really discover these topics. Mm, really fascinating uh, investigative work, Chris. Mm. Did it, when, when, when people were reading this, these 10 fields of, uh, of uh, expositions, they call them, and treaties, did anyone feel that they're very closely related to Greer and all the various... Mm. Um, various facets of Guruji's teachings. Um, there's no doubt Taramata would have had that in mind when she was composing this article, uh, which I couldn't find, by the way. I, could, I, I tried to look on um, the archives for, for this 1934 East West magazine. I couldn't find. So if someone can find it, please do put a link on the comments for us, and then that might be useful. But yeah, all of these I felt that were really quite... Um, esoteric and there's some metaphysical ones as well as physical sciences ones and a lot of it related to um how we do our practices from things like um you know how we how we raise our hands for and, and project the healing 
uh, energy to, to, towards the world. Um, like you said, the radiation of heat and light in infinitely small particles darting forth in all directions. And Guruji says, you know, our hands become like, um, you know, they become the antennas when we're focusing that healing prayer outwards. Um, and also energization, you know, the, the descriptions of energization that we're, where we're gathering energy and healing in our bodies. And also the breathless state and uh, living by, you know, energy and creation as opposed to the oxygen that's coming in through the air. So I felt like there was lots of uh, Kriya elements in all of that. Yeah. And um, even even things like fasting and the benefits of fasting is I uh, got feeling from that in there as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, I I thought the same when I was when I was reading through. So glad um, I'm not the not the only one. Um, on on that note, uh, there was plenty really to delve into um, beyond that and around this subject. Maybe we can link to some reading material if anybody really is um, keen to, to jump into. There's a great uh, bit of information really on Wikipedia on on Kananda. And I thought actually it was interesting that the name was spelt with a dot beneath the N and then um, uh, there's something above the A, like a little squeal, sorry. I don't know the technical word for, the, for that. Um, but Kananda, uh, spelt differently in Wikipedia than it is an autobiography of a yogi. Presuming the Wikipedia one's correct because, um, yeah, uh, the I one... think the um, that system, the system of uh, writing Sanskrit in English, changed, um, and it became more evolved, and this is what the that's what they that's why they're using these accents and these dots now to um, go to the how it's pronounced. So. Mm -hmm. The, the dot with the N at the dot with the bottom. Um, if you, you can see what in the wiki page, what the Sanskrit word is. So that means it's a Karna. It's like that. And and the A with the accent is R. So it's Karna. It's something like that. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Look, I'm glad I'm glad we have you here for that. <laughs> Someone who knows Sanskrit like this guy got it completely <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so you can't call him Canada. <laughs> you can't, yeah, exactly. I was uh, thinking about you, Mike. We can't call them anymore, you know. Um, so, super, super fascinating, you know, individual uh, really was able to power his part the nature of reality through his own dis dis dissertion, really. Um, uh, and it goes on to say that, you know, the recent discovery of the atom, you know, in it in a, a, being a miniature solar system would be no news to the old uh, Fashishka philosophers. He also reduced time to its furthest mathematical concept by describing the smallest unit of time, a kala, as the period taken by an atom to tra uh, traverse its own unit of space. Now, but whenever I was I was looking this up, super fascinated about it, about it I found a very long uh, description, let's say, which I will not go into now as much as I would like to. Um, uh, in the Bhagavad Gita on the measurement of time. And it's just fascinating because it goes on and on and on um, about all the ways to measure time. Um, that, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll check through again. And if we can share this link, I, I will do because really, really fascinating. Um, however, whenever I was searching Kala, you know, as a unit of time measurement, I kept finding 58 seconds. 
so you know on various websites various kind of information boards i was finding this unit of time was 58 seconds um which is not um as i understand it to be as described here as the smallest unit of time um i think it would be longer than 58 seconds so i did think that um you know with regard to the yugas um and the measurement of time in the grander scale there is some uh i suppose discrepancy there between one school of thought and another or maybe it actually comes down to something like this you know what is the smallest measurement in it how does how do atoms spin because apparently there's like an act, active and inactive sort of coupling of atoms and then that actually they actually rotate around themselves so as the period taken by an atom to traverse its own unit of space is actually rotation of the atoms which is something interesting um and then that actually goes you know on and on and on and on um and you know we end up talking about you know these grand uh you know amounts of eras you know times and in, in the forms of yugas and things that are quite significant to us but um anyway so i thought there's some discrepancies that i found online but um essentially i would take this word as verbatim as, as truth um and we have uh, various discoveries here made by the atometer uh kananda we'll, we'll say for now um which is super super good to read um but finally, we'll look at the last part of the paragraph. Um, and maybe, Prank, I'll get you to read the um, first little bit out from the burning Indian imagination um, up to the A. Burning Indian imagination, which can extort new order out of a mass of apparently contradictory facts, is held in check by the habit of concentration. Yeah. Lauren, could you read the second part this restraint confers the power to hold the mind to the pursuit of truth with an infinite patience mike finishes off the last sentence two sentences please from where, the where is it from the tears stood in my eyes the b1 and the last card Chris, would you like to read it out? I think mine yes. might be. Yeah. Yeah. So, tears stood in my eyes at the scientist. This is Yogananda while talking. Uh, tears stood in my eyes at the scientist's concluding words. Is patience not indeed a synonym of India? Confounding time and the historians alike. Really, really nice. Frank? So patience and concentration was uh, keys keys you might say <laughs> and the uh, benefits are really beautifully extolled here and I, I also think that um he's also obviously complementing the indian temperament of having a lot of patience and if uh, if you go to india um you'll see that they do have a lot of patience even now to deal with all the chaos yeah. <laughs> all the bureaucracy and getting things done but uh, there's also this, I'd say this is this qualifies as the third of the patriotic Guruji's patriotic proclamations in the autobiography of a yogi. Um, the first, the second one was actually previously in this chapter when he was speaking to those professors, and he, you know, he said he had some racial pride in uh, uh, India could play a leading part in physics and not just metaphysics. And then uh, previous to that was in 
when Guruji talked about um, the embarrassed scholars and skeptic time, in, uh, when he was talking about uh, the Gali temple, when with the words with that philosopher. So third moment, but in counting, and I think there will be more. Give my spoiler alert. There, yeah, <laughs> there will be for sure. And it, it's it was such a strong uh, and moving way to to finish um, this part, at least of of this chapter. Um, that Guruji's standing there with, he's got tears in his eyes as science, scientists' concluding words of patience, concentration um, of India's imagination. So these these concepts that we've talked about, you know, the power of the mind, um, really, really strong. We'll link to a lot of content that we've talked about today. So there's you know, vast amounts um, of content here to cover. Um, and please feel free to you know share any any insights, any um, wonderful revelations that you do have, uh, listeners, on your own studies and, and journeys. Um, but for now, I think we have covered uh, the part that we have one. Uh, or two more parts left, likely in this chapter, that Mike will cover next, and then Pranik will finish finish the chapter off in the episodes to come. So, guys, anything from you? Do you have anything that you'd like to add before we end the show? Really good uh, spiritual messages across that section, wasn't there for us? I thought when I when I first remembered reading this chapter, I just remember it being about science as opposed to. <laughs> yeah. life lessons which of which there's lots yeah and it just shows um, how, to, how to live lessons yeah how to live lessons and and the pursuit of the um the science in in plant life might not be you know this immediate uh you, you might not be thinking about physics and all these other subjects that we talked about that uh the Bose lab is as went on to to influence and kind of touch on um, but certainly, um, you know, the spiritual pursuit is, is not, um, cannot be separated from pursuit of science. And it's, yeah, beautiful, beautiful to delve into more details. Thanks, listeners, for um, joining us today. And we'll see you on the next episode. Take care, everyone. Take care.